You think I haven't been around the world? I've been everywhere, darling. I'm a very wealthy woman. My husband kept me in the finest clothes from Bergdorf Goodman, you see. Freeze! Yeah. FBI! No! Leave me alone! Hands in the air! I didn't kill anybody, and I didn't burn down the mill either. My sister did, but now she's been eaten by wolves! <laughs> Welcome to Peak Show, home of the world-famous Julia Roberts lawsuit. I'm your host, sweet, beautiful, tropical fish, Bree Rohde, and I set out to explore when the media and creators you love peaked. Here with me today is screenwriter, comedy writer, and performer, and beautiful rule-breaking moth, Christy LaPointe. Christy, how are you? Oh my gosh, I'm so good. I am so excited to do this. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've been following you on social for a long time. I initially followed you just because she posts cool pictures of vegan food and cooking and stuff, but um, that's obviously not uh, your full-time job. You are a uh, self-described, I guess, comedy bad boy, and uh, <laughs> I, you're a delight to follow on Twitter, so I'm really happy we could do this. I'm so happy, too, and it's funny because usually my Instagram and my Twitter worlds are, like, pretty separate. Uh, I always, whenever any, like, comics or comedy writers I know are like yeah I followed you on Instagram I feel so self-conscious and I think like no 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 that's where I'm genuine like you're not allowed to go over there it's <laughs> it's a different me so I'm very happy I I likewise like we connected over Instagram and then I started reading some of your TV critiques and was like oh I like well, you we you. have a lot in common so <laughs> good you. Well, I'm actually working on uh, two different essays right now that I keep like just delaying. And I, I, there's one I have to get at soon because the new season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine is about to premiere, which is what is Bro what if Brooklyn Nine-Nine isn't funny? Because <laughs> I recently rewatched it and I'm like, wait a minute, is this actually not that funny? Because there's been a lot of like really great discourse, uh, I mean, including discourse that I've partaken in about like, look, I don't care if it's funny. It is cop propaganda. Like You can still like it, but it's cop propaganda. But the last couple seasons, I'm just like, is the only good part of the show Andre Brower? Because it might be. <laughs> oh, he is exceptional, so truly. Good. I but, love him so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know I know, we're about to go deep into Parks and the Mike Shuraverse, but yes. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is one that took my husband Chris and I a long time to get into. And then even mm -hmm. when we did, we kind of felt like... Yeah, like we're gonna watch it. It's better than a lot of other stuff, like it is, sitcoms yeah. out there. But I never really got the hype that's that seemed to surround it for a long time. I think if you, in order to find um, Brooklyn Nine Nine charming, and also why I think a lot of its core demographic is presently about maybe ten years younger than something like Parks or The Office, even is like. I hate to say, like the Tumblr of it all, and I like I liked Tumblr at the time. I know it's become kind of a pejorative thing, but um, it's like the there are some shows that seem to exist on GIF ability alone. And yes, I say GIF, not GIF. But um, wow, bold, I know. Bold. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't know uh, what my excuse is. I just prefer Jif uh, because I don't know. I'm a fan of giraffes, um, but, <laughs> but yeah, like I feel like Parks and Rec is like largely one of those very one-linery shows and kind of very like yeah, it's a it's a jiffable show. Um, Parks less because Parks is more about like um, dialogues and um, like it's got i'd say longer um longer driven stories um it's not a joke a minute show which like we talked a lot in my recent uh round of simpsons episodes about how simpsons 
like their their whole thing was to cram as many jokes in like one minute and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, Which, like, like I said, we're just sending in the Mike Shriver, so I'm excited about that. Totally, I like I so I love comedy. I my sort of dream career trajectory at this point is I would love to write, you know, sort of subversive, very progressive multicam sitcoms, like and and occasional feature films. Like if I could do that for the rest of my life, I'd be thrilled. And mm-hmm. I am a dialogue bitch and I am a relationship <laughs> characters bitch. Like that's all I care about. Anything else is, you know, surplus for me. Uh, yeah. But but there are shows like Happy Endings, which is one of my all time favorite TV shows. That is that sort of joke a minute. It's unbelievable what they're able to cram in and the mm-hmm. sort of craft of those actors to be able to make it seem so natural and fun Mm -hmm. and then there are shows like parks where even if they're not like saying things that are funny the chemistry and the character development like do a lot and and the performances do a lot of heavy lifting Mm -hmm. versus maybe like a good place where it's like puns 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 I know there are a lot of comparisons between Parks and The Office for for incredibly obvious reasons. Like, you know, essentially the same time period, both Greg Daniels make sure shows, both mockumentary styles. But I would say that um, Parks and Rec is a lot more effectively character driven than The Office. Um, Because The Office, even when The Office had really great character stuff, like I thought there could be some really amazing character stuff with like Mike and Pam was probably, uh, Michael and Pam was probably my favorite duo of characters for actually driving things. But like depending on the writers, they really flipped. And the one thing like, (laughs) I'm already jumping all over the place because normally I'd get to this in more of the critique section, but like Parks and Rec was so consistently written, you know? Yeah. However, I feel about the quality and any of its decline over the years, the style of writing, the style of dialogue and and character interaction was so consistent. Absolutely. Which as a viewer, like I get so attached. And so if there is that consistency, you feel like they're your real friends. They they feel more real. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, before we deep dive into Parks, there are two important questions. First, um, because I know you are currently working on some stuff and most writers can't tell us much about what they're working on, but anything that you've done recently that our listeners uh, are, uh, I mean, we have most of our listeners are Canadian and stuff, but where they might be able to uh, view or get some of your stuff that you've written. Hello, Canada. Uh, I haven't. I'm also Canadian. I don't know why I said that like an outsider. I'm half Canadian, <laughs> half American. It's my burden to bear. Uh, I lately have been doing a lot of sample writing, which is writing you do that no one will ever see other than people who are hiring for TV shows. Uh, so I also have been in development rooms over the last COVID of it all, uh, which are rooms where you're basically de- developing new tv shows and then the producers go away and try to sell it and get money and see if it can actually be a real show so i worked on a kids uh development room this year and uh i'm hoping that that show gets made but i truly am just hired gun writer so out of the loop could not tell you where the (laughs) development process is so at this point my twitter i know this is not a plug time but like my twitter is where i kind of fuck around and joke and rant and uh that's that's sort of it i haven't done done too much lately 
Hey, you know what? Uh, there's uh, there's kind of more important things in the world right now. So <laughs> Yes. Yeah. My yes. partner has also, he's a COVID long hauler. He's been sick for the last 15 months. So that kind of took over our life. Uh, he and Naturally. I- Naturally. Yeah, yeah. If you can imagine. Uh, he and I wrote a feature together a couple years ago called Let's Do This. That's like a- comedy heist low stakes toronto <laughs> film uh and oh, that's that, so cool yeah we we love it that is truly our baby and it got optioned and there are producers and a director attached and it is also in this stage thank you but it's one of those will they find millions of dollars to get this made i don't know i don't even know how that works it's kind uh, of crazy how there are people in the world who just have like millions of dollars lying around and then you have like you know script writers and producers and, and stuff that are just trying so hard to scrape together money to get something made why like there are so many projects that could get made if um you know wealth distribution were a thing oh yeah don't get me started on that i could just yes. truly vent for for ages but we've been we've been very lucky so i'm kind of in a place of trying to figure out uh, what the next projects on the burner are because uh, once once you finish writing, you're kind of out of control, especially in the feature world. In TV, writers are much more involved and in charge. And in films, they're sort of like, thanks for the script. We're going to go do this now. <laughs> That's so interesting. I don't know that many people who work in the film and TV industries. So um, I'm always super, super into any insights I can get just because I love learning how things work totally and it is so different in canada versus the states so like i'm a massive po podcast listener and a huge nerd so i love script notes and sort of lots of the craft-based uh media that's out there but it's only somewhat applicable to the way things are done here i worked on a tv show called the beaverton for like three or four years um, as their social media manager, producer, person. And I, I, it was like a crash course in Canadian television and how it's actually run and the severe limitations that are put on it, which, you know, it's kind of like a cliche to make fun of how bad Canadian TV is and how sort of milk toast it can be. But uh, there are a lot of reasons that that happens, even when you have really strong writers pushing for cutting edge stuff. Sometimes... Uh, lawyers and uh, producers and networks won't <laughs> let you do that so the other important question uh which we ask all our guest hosts is when did you peak uh i love this question and <laughs> it won't send me into an existential existential spiral ah! oh my gosh the <laughs> the microphone could sense my fear it fell off um I would say, uh, as someone who I've recently discovered has been undiagnosed with ADHD my whole life uh, and had a lot on the go all the time, I, I think probably sometime in high school would be my peak. I was such a an overachiever and a just full of optimism. I loved school. I was very academic. I loved theater and acting. I was sure I was going to be a Broadway star wonderkind. Like that was Aww. not in doubt at any, any point. So in like grade 10 or 11, I was taking 1 million dance and voice lessons and doing 30 productions a year and getting straight A's and on the yearbook committee for some reason and part of the interact club with rotary like just so much that I look back on and I think I know I enjoyed doing those things but wow I wish I had just like taken some chill and been a teenager a bit maybe 
Uh, and yeah. I, I honestly don't understand how I was able to do all of that when now I'm exhausted just by being alive. You know, I sometimes also think, because I was like you, I was a very involved uh, involved high school student. I was, it, if this is possible, I was involved in theater without being a theater kid um, mm-hmm. because I was primarily a dancer and musician. And so theater was just like an easy way to get to perform. Um, totally. But I'm, I'm a terrible actor. So that's why I was... Uh, I was never I've I've been a lead once and it I'm was, a terrible dancer yeah. and I went to a very very <laughs> intense musical theater school in New Brunswick where okay. there literally wasn't a drama program like we only did musicals we never did plays wow. the only time plays happened were when I created my own course to direct a Midsummer Night's Dream in grade 12 <laughs> yes like that's how I was in high school uh, but I was a really bad dancer so that was always a real uh, hindrance to me in musical theater it's funny i would actually say i'm a better singer than a dancer um because i always post about dancing and i never post about the fact that i'm a singer but the one thing with theater is i'm not i don't consider myself having a soloist voice at all Mm -hmm. i am an alto and there are no solos for altos. me too alto club i love it you can probably harmonize the hell out of anything though my my sister and i we our voices sound the exact same which is really weird because we look very different but if you like if one of us picks up the phone you would think it was the other um and we harmonize like crazy well together we haven't sang together in about 10 years but it like that's the one i'm like if you want two hilariously opposite looking people um, as part of your bit or whatever you like we're a great package uh she's a good actor i am a good dancer like we even each other out <laughs> i feel um, like you could become like a tiktok sensation with this uh lately i've been trying to become a tiktok sensation but it's mostly just me being really mad at people <laughs> <laughs> different but, different crowd different yes. crowd for sure but but no i i often think about how good i would have been in high school if i had just focused on like 30% fewer things. <laughs> yes. That like, is a struggle I still have to I this was day. such a, like, I'll say this. I was such an A- student in the sense that, like, I could never overachieve at anything because I was too busy, like, achieving or underachieving at everything else. <laughs> yeah, 100%. When I, I, I loved school. I loved learning. I was such a fucking nerd. But when <laughs> I, when I got to grade 11 or 12 and realized I'm going to theater school, like, I'm going to become an actor, suddenly it hit me. I don't need to do well in any of these academic, like I I don't care. And I was never great at maths or sciences. And so those last years, it's just hilarious to look at report cards because it just went from like straight A's all the time, an occasional B to like, oh, I got a 60% in this chemistry class I took for some reason. And I did not care. It's really interesting because I I actually have uh, firsthand witness like the kind of effect that the office had on a lot of people, but like because even self included when I was like an unemployed journalist trying to find uh, permanent work, thinking like well maybe I could try to be a salesperson because it takes no real aptitude in anything to be a salesperson, which is incorrect. Like, yeah, I think of course. Sales is an incredibly specific talent that I don't have. Um, but I do wonder, like, did Parks and Rec start a great push of people like, I want to get into bureaucracy because you do positively no work? Because <laughs> that's the like the um, the stereotype that it perpetuates. And I mean, I did summer student work in government, federal government, and I'll say I was the most overpaid and underworked I've ever been. I don't think that's <laughs> the case with all or even most bureaucrats, but that was a pretty great summer. Yeah, it's it's 
wild. I know very, very little about political work and anything I see is from like an outsider, a relative perspective. And uh, it does seem like a lot of the stereotypes ring very true for people. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know personally anyone who works in municipal politics. Um, my uncle and his wife have been pretty much lifelong federal government bureaucrats, and they're some of the hardest working people I know. Uh, but that's because my uncle is in tech and specifically in like cybersecurity and stuff. So that is really demanding. And I think like the whole conceit of Parks and Rec is the idea of an incredibly low stakes environment. Yeah, totally, because that's where the humor is. That's yeah. how you make it a comedy. So yeah, as we mentioned at the top, we're talking Parks and Rec today, the seven-season MBCU comedy that starred Amy Poehler and began in the magically time of 2009. So Christy, can you tell us a little bit about like your relationship to Parks and Rec? Like when you started watching it, did you watch along as new episodes came out? Yes, I was so excited uh, that I would get to chat with you about this show specifically because I watch a lot of TV. I fucking love okay. TV and Parks is so dear and near to me but also I have a very very complicated relationship with it so I thought yeah maybe this can be like a therapy session for both of us to work <laughs> through this shit uh I watched the pilot for Parks basically when it came out and I hated it I thought mm -hmm. because at the time Parks was initially supposed to be a spin-off of The Office like a direct spin-off mm -hmm. that's what NBC wanted and Mike Schur and Greg Daniels were like mm -hmm why don't we just do like a similar mockumentary style office style thing, but it, it will be in its own world. And so I went into it as a huge fan of the office kind of uh, dissatisfied and something about the pilot just felt so flat and I, I hated it. I did not enjoy it. And then my partner, Chris and I got together and I was, you know, just out of theater school with a lot of opinions about acting and media. <laughs> and we were like, let's give it another shot. You never know. And we watched it, hated it, hated it again. And I honestly had to watch the pilot like two or three more times until it hooked me. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I had sort of this lens of expecting it to be the office. Uh, I don't I don't really know what the block was, but once I finally started watching it, I got I got hooked pretty fast and I really enjoyed it. And that first the first couple seasons are so good. They and good, yeah. I know we'll get into the many peaks and the many the many iterations of this show because it did continue to change and evolve a lot. But when I go back and watch it now, I am shocked sometimes how many of those iconic episodes that live rent-free in my mind are from the first or second season. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Leslie marrying the, the the gay penguins. That is so <laughs> early into the show. Um, Leslie absently um, humming, mama, mama, poker face, mama, poker face. That's what living with my husband is like. He hears a song and it's all he hums for five days. I was I was singing Lady Gaga this morning and Chris was like, why? Why is that in your head? And now I'm thinking, oh, it's probably because I just watched that episode. I had not put that together. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, anyway, I, I so eventually by the time I finally got into it, I think it was around the fourth season that I was like, oh, I love this show now. And then I watched Chris and I together watch religiously uh, as it came out until the end. Mm -hmm. I um, so 
there's a direct correlation with how much parks I was watching and how employed I was. <laughs> um, and I, I'll say, and it's funny because I remember having this weird, like, kind of self Mandela effect because I swore I thought Parks and Rec debuted earlier than it did because I remember sitting in my living room in the house that I lived in in the last couple of years of high school. I moved around a lot, so I was living. I, I was positive that I was reading about the concept of Parks and Rec and like, oh, a new show created by, uh, you know, the creator of The Office and, and one of the writers of The Office. And it's set uh, set in local government and stuff. And I remember reading that in like a variety or something. I was also a weird TV and comedy nerd. Like I always tell people, big part of my origin story is the fact that I started watching Night Court when I was nine, um, <laughs> which John Larroquette did have a really amazing uh, guest spot on the uh, second season episode of Parks. So that was very delightful to me. But And I was like, well, wait a minute. I left that place, that home, like because I, I had this really distinct memory of reading this article while sitting in my living room from the house I lived in in North Bay. It's like, wait, I moved away from there in 2008. But that is because Parks and Rec actually took a very long time to get made. Um, it was in 2007 when Ben Silverman had become the co-chair of NBC's entertainment division. Um, and Silverman um, is a pretty prolific EP. If you look him up, he was an EP on The Office. And so in, in 2007, that was a really, really good time for The Office because it was just in like its third or fourth season. It had really climbed up. Um, fourth or fifth season was about when it peaked in the ratings as well. So like everything was coming up Greg Daniels. And because <laughs> and because Greg Daniels and Simpsons writers have said they basically based Millhouse off him, everything literally was coming up Millhouse. Oh. Um, so, um, I'm he, doing a lot of snaps. I really hope the mic is picking these up. <laughs> or those are going to sound like yes. a lot of silences from me. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's funny because I think Greg Daniels has been mentioned in almost every episode of this podcast besides maybe our Mighty Ducks episodes because <laughs> those are more movies based. But like, there's such a Greg Daniels chain of events. Like Greg Daniels leaves The Simpsons and goes to King of the Hill and so do a bunch of animators and the quality of The Simpsons declines. Greg Daniels leaves King of the Hill to start The Office and the writing quality of King of the Hill declines. Greg Daniels and Mike Schur leave The Office and hand the reins over to Paul Lieberstein and Jen Zalata and the quality of The Office declines. So like he just kind of leaves a wake of... TV shows for people to pick up after him when he starts a new one. Uh, but no, yeah, you're, you are correct. It was originally um, brought up as the idea of an office spinoff. And I know they had started to kind of have the concept of what does Karen Filippelli do after she leaves Scranton, after she leaves uh, Dunder Mifflin, hence, you know, getting Rashida Jones in. Um, and it uh, they kind of went back and forth, I believe, with is it going to be a spinoff? Is it going to be a non-spinoff? And it really came into its own when Amy Poehler was cast in the lead role. Because uh, another thing that was consistent from the start is they wanted to explore the idea of female friendships, which, I mean, unless you count friends, which I don't because that's more the idea of a group friendship, there was not a lot uh, since the Golden Girls that really explored the dynamics of hardcore female friendships. Wow, someone is slandering a certain foursome on a very popular HBO show, but that's that's fine. We don't need to get into that. <laughs> no, you you are absolutely right and I had thought about Sex and the City, but I also think like Sex and the City was really it's a very specific thing. It's like uh, female friendship and urban living and the idea of like living in a city in your 20s and 30s. Absolutely. Um, it's also like, yeah. although there were funny <laughs> moments, it's not a sitcom. <laughs> no, it's it's 
HBO comedy is so different from conventional network comedy. Especially um, then. Yes. So yeah, um, when uh, when Amy Poehler was cast, they did also end up delaying production somewhat since she was pregnant with her first son, Archie, at the time. Uh, so it came in as a mid-season replacement in April 2009, but it is very possible that in spring 2008, before I left my hometown, that I was reading about the show. Yes, you, you yeah. honestly probably were. When I was doing a little deep dive before this episode, I found Mike Schur in an interview talking about developing it in 2008. So Okay. Yeah. So um, reviews and ratings for the first season were mixed to poor. Um, and he saw it, obviously, as a bad clone of The Office and Leslie as a bad clone of Michael Scott, which was never their intention. I think they did always intend for her to be smarter than Michael Scott. I I personally think the difference was that in the first season, it went from her being the butt of the joke to her being in on the joke mm-hmm. and kind of being OK with it, which we'll, we'll get to there because I... I was happy with how they took Leslie's character up to a certain point. Um, I just want to say before we go forward that I think it's so interesting that you say they wanted to kind of be able to center female friendships, which uh, that is a huge theme in my writing. All I want to talk about all the time is like (laughs) women and non-binary people being there for each other. That's been a huge theme in my life. And it's my favorite thing. Right now I'm working on a sci-fi like one hour Buffy Winona-esque pilot that's just about like a group of girlfriends on a spaceship, basically. Uh, Mm. But it's so funny that that was sort of this core theme they wanted to bring in, these two white guys. Yeah. And and frankly, I hate to say it, but like Greg Daniels' previous shows, which I love, I am a huge King of the Hill fan, and what white millennial doesn't love The Office? Um, They're not great for female friendships. And like Mm -hmm. the whole thing, the, the joke with Peggy is that she has no friends and that like she has kind of the suburban housewife friends um and in the office i mean it was really difficult like all of the women on that show had almost adversarial relationships with each other so i mean good on them greg greg daniels make sure the allies we need question mark Um, (laughs) it's like it's an improvement but it's still so funny through a 2021 lens to be like oh these two guys are the ones who should be like showing us what female friendship looks like okay they should get the dorothy everton smythe movie <laughs> they award. should they would uh, um so yeah ratings uh ratings and reviews um even though they were really weak for even though the reviews were really weak for the first season uh like most comedy uh the um the first season was actually the highest rated uh and it um it had an average of about 6 million viewers. Now, that's also a uh, small sample size because it was only a mid-season length uh, season. So who knows? It could have very well been lower had it been a full season. But um, throughout the seven seasons, there was very little change in the cast, uh, which is pretty great. Of course, the most significant change, which I think we all just kind of pretend happened from the beginning, was the replacement of Paul Schneider with Adam Scott and Rob Lowe in the second season and ratings unlike a lot of other comedies they never really got that bad like parks and rec was never a ratings juggernaut um comedies rarely are but like when you have something like the office like that brought in pretty solid returns uh for a long time um so parks and rec never had a dramatic dip in ratings it was just never that explosive to begin with um its worst season was the sixth season which Mm was 3.76 million so overall ratings were generally in the mid to high four million which if that were in canada that would be the most popular (laughs) comedy ever because like you'd be on the air forever you'd be this hour has 22 minutes 
Oh, yeah. Like I, I used to, uh, as part of my job, type up like the weekly rating summary um, in Canada and the AMA for um, for Big Bang Theory, which if there was a new episode of Big Bang Theory in its last two years, it was never defeated by anything else. Um, the Good Doctor would come close, but that's it. <laughs> um, great, and great. even the finale of, uh, I think the finale of um, Big Bang Theory was the most uh, popular popular non-sports thing I ever typed up. And it was probably like four and a half million Canadian. So that goes to show Canadian ratings versus American ratings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's also there are just so as many people. Here. <laughs> yes, it's also so funny to think back to how much more important ratings were even at that time versus oh, God, now, yeah. like traditional TV airing to think of a world where streaming isn't like the first priority slash place people are turning. Mm -hmm. Hilarious. So when I the first episode of Parks I watched because I remember reading that like oh, people don't actually like this very much. Oh, I guess I won't watch it, which I did feel kind of bad for because I liked Amy Poehler. Um, I loved Amy Poehler. Mm -hmm. She was, because like, I, I I know we talked about this in my Simpsons episode. They always say the, the best seasons of SNL were the ones when you were in high school. And 100%. When I was, when I was in grade nine, that was the golden era of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler doing Weekend Update. You had Rachel Dratch. You had you still had Seth Meyers on. Like all the people who are still, you know, very much like our comedy giants now. Um and so I was really excited. Like, I, I went and rushed out to see Mean Girls because Amy Poehler was in it. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, there was a time when Amy, it's so funny to think that we are not in this time anymore. But Amy and Tina were like literally the representation of women in comedy mm -hmm. for a long, like a decade, a long, yep. long, long time. Baby Mama. I was like, oh, you gotta see Baby Mama. Yes. Um, and, and. I, I forget because I actually have only seen maybe three episodes of it, but when did 30 Rock premiere? Ooh. Because I think these were kind of airing at least largely in tandem. Like these, they, they did overlap obviously pretty significantly. 30 Rock started before. I should know this, but yeah. 30 Rock w was when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And Park and, started like ap right after. Yeah. And I feel like it was it was really appropriate directions for them to go in because I I mean, I really love Tina Fey. I find she's really good at playing not likable people. She is really good at that. And that like Liz Lemon is rarely like she's, I, mean, I mean she has she's, brown hair, so Yes. <laughs> um whereas Amy Poehler, as and I think she really came into this with the Leslie Nope, she is really good at playing very like pure in heart people. Mm -hmm. Like she has played a bitch um, and like a manipulator and stuff, but she's just and I, I think uh, I, I think Parks and Rec almost could have stereotyped her in that like very pure in heart kind of way. But I think she has enough in, you know, in her portfolio and stuff. And, and she's Amy Poehler. So you're, she's powerful enough to not just get typecast now. Totally. But, um, but I think it was it was a really good respective display of both their strengths. Like Tina Fey is really good at playing that sardonic, like not even realizing how unlikable she is person. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Le Leslie Nope is such an interesting character in that. And we can talk a little bit about how how they shaped her and changed her. But by the time we're in like season three, season four, season five, she is so complex. It's not just, oh, she's like, super optimistic and happy all the time she is an optimistic person and she does try to look on the bright side but she's also 
so hardworking to a fault. She's also, you know, not afraid to have conflict about things that are important to her. And then there's this weird thread. I went back and rewatched a bunch of episodes this week. There's this weird thread about her being like a hoarder and being unable to clean her home. <laughs> yeah. And I wish they had gone into that even more, but I I watched it with such a different lens this time thinking about like, oh, that is such a sign of neurodivergence. People who are able to excel professionally or in one thing they're really hyper-focused in, mm -hmm. but are unable to wash, you know, their sink or whatever. And I thought about that and like, oh, I wish we had gone a little deeper, but that wouldn't yeah. be a Mike Schur show, I guess. No. And I still, even though I think Mike Schur is an incredibly talented writer, I also worry about the the delicateness with which you can handle that, which is not to say like, I don't like when people treat neurodivergence like a very special episode type of thing. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, Parks and Rec um, has its certain groups of people that it really enjoys making fun of and not in the most tasteful of ways. And so I'm, I might be kind of glad that uh, ultimately, like, I would, I feel like it's much more fulfilling for me to headcanon Leslie as neurodivergent because then it's not ruined. Yes, 100%. Yeah. I literally diagnosed her with ADHD and I was like, I can't wait to find out what else you have going on. I guess when I talk to your psychologist, I don't know. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I just think that it could have been a one note character so easily. And mm -hmm. I think it's a testament to the writers and to Amy Poehler that yeah. she was so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Well, by the time I started watching it, because I think also what prevented me from watching it was Fall of 2008 was when I started university and I, despite, you know, just being an English and cultural studies major and I probably could have fucked off a lot more than I did, I was really, really hardworking and I like, I wouldn't watch anything until every bit of homework was done and stuff. And so like, I didn't watch anything new for two years and it was like toward the end of the semester and I had in my second year, so it was getting close to the end of the year and I was really, really hungover and I tuned in and like for some reason my roommate that year had wanted to get cable and like oh, okay and wow. yeah Bougie. i know 2010 and we had cable <laughs> also my rent was 375 oh oh mm. kitchener 2010 baby um yeah um and so i was like just looking for something to watch and the episode of april's birthday was on mm. and and it's funny because that sticks out as the April's birthday episode, when I look back, I'm like, no, that was the episode where Ben and Chris were introduced. That's such an important episode. Um, but I maybe didn't realize that these were brand new characters. And I knew at that time, I knew Adam Scott from, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen a lot of the things he was in, but I knew him from just like a lot of bit parts and comedies and mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's that guy with the really far apart eyes. Um, <laughs> that's how I knew him. Um, and uh, I, but I remember really liking that episode and I was super into Aubrey Plaza back then. And she was like, I kind of forgot how much this show really made Aubrey Plaza or elevated Aubrey Plaza's mm -hmm. career because prior to this, she had been in like the college humor stuff. And I really loved her from a movie that I'm always surprised that a lot of people haven't seen, but Mystery Team, which mm, is- I don't know it. Okay, so it's back when Donald Glover and um, Dominic Dierkes and I forget what the third guy in the trio was, but they had their Derek comedy- uh, like little group and it was a comedy that they wrote and starred in about three teenagers who have like a little kids encyclopedia encyclopedia brown style like mystery team and they they solve 
mysteries for people and um they're like incredible annoyingly childish and everyone is kind of like <laughs> who's gonna tell them that this isn't normal anymore and um Aubrey i'm writing Plaza, this down right now yeah, so i mystery team hard oh. recommend for anyone out there and yeah aubrey plaza is uh is donald glover's love interest in that and she is you know doing the aubrey plaza thing even back then um but i you know i was a young budding bisexual and i was like I like I like ladies with dark hair. Yeah. <laughs> she seems sarcastic and smart and over she, it. She, you know, she could she could be my girlfriend and validate my worldview. I like her. Yes. Um, so um, after that, uh, I had a summer of underemployment uh, coming up, and I um, legally uh, acquired all of the episodes up to that point and spent the entire summer just like mainlining it, and it made me so happy. And after that, I actually did make an effort to watch new episodes more often um and then i caught up on it a lot also in 2012 which was be between i think season four and five um because i was again uh just graduated underemployed you know working several different unpaid internships at the time Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes had to have something to do um and then lost uh so fell out of tandem once again uh when i started working regularly and I caught up on all of, I think it was the final season or most of the final season on a plane. Like that's Ooh. how quickly I, it was a plane to LA. Uh, Toronto to LA is about a five hour trip. And I managed to kill most of that season on a flight to LA. That's so. a great way to have a flight go by. Just high quality sitcom. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And uh, I hate flying. So it was great for me. Um, yeah, so... Parks and Rec is probably the weirdest relationship I have to a show because, like, I think, and um, I don't know if you ever read the writer Kate Wagner. Um, mm -hmm. She uh, she's like somewhat of an architecture critic, but she also does a lot of pop culture critic and criticism. And she's got a lot of great points about how like criticizing a show is actually part of liking it, and you can be very critical of something and like it. And that's why I think like I love Parks and Rec. It fills me with a lot of positivity there's a lot to criticize about it. Um, and I think that's like, I mean, <laughs> criticizing is how I love something, but I want to be careful with how I say that because I don't criticize the people I love as much <laughs> as I criticize the things I love. Cool, cool, cool. Got it, got it, yeah. Yeah, like it's it's an, it's probably easy and trite to say about Parks and Rec at this point, like the whole like Leslie, ha Leslie is a hashtag girl boss and the way she's like super worshiping of Hillary Clinton. It's super trite to look back now and say oh this is really lame or even problematic but i don't know if it actually hit that way at the time like i think it was just a funny comedy bit at the time totally i i've listened to some interviews with mike sure and greg daniels talking about sort of the inception of the show and although they are both really smart ivy league educated men who want to do deeper things with their work like they were trying to come up with a really funny sitcom they didn't choose this setting in this world because they thought it was going to be revolutionary or you know undermine yeah. the status quo they were like what would be a really funny world to set a bunch of characters in oh sure yeah. like municipal government yeah and and that like much like my you know, my relationship with Leslie kind of peaks and then uh, really nosedives. I think also like the setting of the show is partially 
why some of the later seasons hit a little differently because I think um, they seem to, at a certain point, indicate that they felt limited by the confines of keeping everything within the Parks Department, which is why you have Leslie suddenly run for council and stuff, and it becomes a lot more about the town of Pawnee, which also, frankly, becomes larger and larger and more <laughs> complex town yep. as the series goes on. And, like, I keep trying to, like, place where there's a, an analog for Pawnee in my world, and, like, I... You know, I lived in North Bay and I'm like, well, I suppose you could compare it to North Bay. Like there's there's a higher education there and malls and stuff, but it's also a small town. But I, th I think I've kind of settled on Pawnee's the Brantford of Indiana. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My sister lived in Indiana for a while. She went to school there and mm. it wasn't really until visiting some small towns that I, I recognized how real a lot of it felt, mm -hmm. especially the earlier seasons when it does feel like a true small town yeah and like people I, going to town hall meetings in a school gymnasium and stuff yes like that is so real totally totally and i don't know like i find canada and america just as similar as we are there are so many things that are so different and i lived in yep. new brunswick for a long time i went to high school in fredericton and that is like quote unquote a city but it's you know 40 50,000 people mm -hmm. and it almost felt sim more similar to something that size to me like oh yeah there's a university too technically but also they're in the same buildings for the most part and yes. you know there's people think uh, they're I don't even know how to articulate this but I, I felt like I know what this experience is and I wonder if part of that is I know Mike Schur is from the Midwest. Uh, mm -hmm. I wonder if it's his true life experience and whenever the 70s growing up, coupled with him living in Los Angeles for so long and, you yeah. know, that being his current life. It's kind of like a weird amalgam. Yeah. And I mean, even like that's and that's the thing about comedies and sitcoms is like people, you know, kind of take for granted that the sit means situation and the situation is supposed to provide limitations and limitations is also what makes what can make jokes into jokes and what can create a specific style of humor is limitations. But after a while, you start you get that itch and it's like, well, I want to have an episode where they take on men's rights activists and I want to have an episode where we do this topical thing. And sometimes you can't do that within the confines of the situation you put yourself in, which maybe just supports my theory that no comedy should go past four seasons. Because <laughs> like you don't have to. I mean, and again, I talked about this a lot in my recent Simpsons episodes, like you don't have to do every idea. You don't have to do like in the case of The Simpsons, the thing I kept repeating was you don't have to do an episode about wind power. Like, not not every show needs to tackle this issue. Um, and so, like, maybe Parks shouldn't have lasted as long as it did. But, hey, that's why we do peak show is to uh, it, You got that right. Why. I mean, I'm also, yeah. like, a huge proponent of the UK model where shorter yep. seasons and less stringent sort of we're going to have this many seasons with this many episodes. Like, do what the show wants. Do what mm -hmm. maybe it's three seasons with six episodes and then a weird Christmas special. Maybe like <laughs> like I think that gives writers and creators so much more freedom to mm -hmm. actually tell stories 
stories in the way that serve their particular story and set of characters best. And I wish Canada would adopt this. And I don't understand why we're not. Canada trying to do shows like America is ridiculous because we don't have the same budgets. We don't have the same resources. We have no star power, no kind of infrastructure for promo. And doing it in the UK model, I just think would be so so much smarter i just finished watching starstruck i don't know if you've seen it yet Uh, i've never actually heard of it oh you must it's on hbo max it's an incredible new zealand creator star she's in it it's basically Notting hill in reverse uh a regular millennial woman has a one night stand with a movie star and then it's just six episodes of like what happens after that and they keep running into each other and it is so charming and sweet and sexy and fucking hilarious and six episodes like three hours it was over so quick i wanted more sometimes that's all you need to tell the story that you want to tell and then it's like yeah now they can do another season and do whatever they want and it doesn't have to it's like the confines don't matter as much i don't know i could i could go on forever back to parks and rec All right, so the yeah, but that's a, the interesting thing with Leslie though was that um, I thought it was really smart to go back and tinker with her as a character after the first season, and I actually didn't necessarily think that it was that much of a bad Michael Scott ripoff. Like I, going back to the first season, I sometimes wonder like was I too hard on it or what? Um, you know, was it just the time in my life? And I think you're right that removing the expectations built by the office is a really good thing to do with that uh, with that first totally. season. And yeah. for I think I think the sort of conventional thought about it is that once Adam Scott and Rob Lowe show up that's when the show really starts and that's when it takes off and as this has become a comfort watch and I've watched the whole series over and over and over I I don't really agree with that anymore and I kind of think I think that like a those first couple seasons are so funny and they're so much good but I also think that the way they build her character is really valuable and I think you couldn't have like the Leslie who falls in love with Ben and becomes an equal partner to Ben without her kind of going through the growth that she goes through with Mark Brandanowitz and in the first couple seasons. I'm actually very pro Mark Brandanowitz. I I was fine with him leaving the show. What I'm not fine with is this idea that he was the worst character. And because I, I think you need a good straight man. Um, I know, again, because people just could not stop comparing the show to The Office. People said, like, oh, he was just a weird Jim Halpert ripoff because he was, what, because he was over everything, I guess. But, like, I don't <laughs> see the hair. I don't see the Jim comparisons at all. Um, and I think there there was a lot of really good, well-observed humor with Mark. Like, the idea of, like, him saying about his job as a city planner, like, what I do can literally be measured in inches. Um, or the episode about him helping Tom move because like when you have a pickup truck, everyone asks you to help them with stuff. And like, I, I come from an area with a lot of pickup trucks. So I understand. I love the line. Like I am not a mover. I'm a sap who owns a pickup truck. (laughs) Yeah. I, I really think, and again, I think that actor is fantastic and he does a great job with what he was given, but upon so many rewatches, I've kind of come to the point where I just think, I don't think that character fits in this sort of idyllic, idealized, mm-hmm. Mike Schur world. Like, he's too real for it. I think he he was great in the first couple seasons because he was a foil to Leslie because the the vibe I never I got from Leslie was never that she was stupid or incompetent. The vibe I get from Leslie, and I think they just refined this and leaned more into this as they rewrote her a bit, is that she is 
she just takes her job a little too seriously. Like, I think actually a good episode in the first season when you start seeing it come into its own is um, when they have the after hours drinks and she opens up the, uh, the bottle of basket, wine gift yeah. and she's convinced that she's going to get fired and that she's done like the worst thing ever and stuff. And, and she tells on herself for yes. no reason. Like she makes it into a thing when it doesn't need to be. Yeah. And so I think Mark serves as a really great character because he is a foil to that because he doesn't take anything seriously. He's like, yeah, I have like three letters in my file. Like I'm, you know, this is just what happens and how like he works for government because it was an easy job to get. And, you know, he's fine with the idea of going over to the private sector. Like he doesn't believe in anything, whereas Leslie believes in things maybe a little too much. But I think you're right. Like they realize how that like Leslie's idyllic nature is really good and let's surround her with characters who can kind of challenge that but still complement it mm -hmm. versus a character who's always there to even her out and bring her down. Yeah, and I do think that as the show went on, the foils became goofier and goofier. And it was <laughs> like, sure, she can have terrible people, but it's going to be Jeremy Jam. It's going to be Bobby Newport. It's going to be yeah. people who are like so comically awful that, of <laughs> course, it's frustrating, but it doesn't feel as threatening. And yeah. there's a real thread through a lot of Mike Schur's work of like even the quote unquote bad guys being almost cartoonish mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's a choice that makes his shows very comforting and very watchable but yeah. then I think when we go back to like looking at this through a 2021 lens it also makes it kind of softens things that I don't know should be softened on TV yeah and I mean Mike Schur's shows will never really be like this, which is also why I think it'll be really interesting because I know with Brooklyn Nine-Nine coming back uh, this summer, they, um, they've said they have a lot of rewriting to do, which, like, I agree, you, you got to be careful with that. And, like, you know, copaganda is still copaganda, but if you want to try to paint a nuanced portrayal, like, good luck to you. Because <laughs> that's one thing that he's not known for is creating nuanced portrayals of... Uh, yeah, like you said, nuanced portrayals of bad guys. And I, I think that's, like, the... The gripe that I have with how Leslie's character ended up after it was in this really, really good place, and I find there's a bit of a schism when she gets to city council. And it's kind of like, you know, it might I think if you look back at season two, Leslie, and how she had pictures of Condoleezza Rice and Nancy Pelosi <laughs> and Hillary Clinton in her office, the, we're not supposed to think that that's awesome. We're just supposed to think that it's really dorky. Yeah, um, totally. But in once she gets on council, it's like we feel like we have we're supposed to be on her side with everything. And that's where like the girl bossiness actually does become a little um, more grating to me um, because there are a lot more times where you're supposed to agree with Leslie. I'd say it's still in like the fifth or so season, it's fine. The sixth season is a really hard watch for me because Leslie is presented as like, and, and it's, it's bad. <laughs> I'm getting a little stumbly, but they take the foils like Jam and they make them so uh, super villainy and very Dr. Colossus-y that um, <laughs> he can't, like, you have no choice but to root for Leslie because you are absolutely no gray area not supposed to root for Jam. Because there are times when I look at Leslie as a, as a counselor and I'm just like, you're not representing your constituents as much as your constituents might be wrong and they're certainly portrayed as wrong, like, you are going against what the people who voted for you wanted. So I actually, it's weird because when Leslie is recalled and that's like this horrible thing, I'm like, well, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating when you start to look at the show more objectively instead of who who are they telling us is good and bad and when you look at behavior and I know you have also like lots of thoughts about Leslie's friendship like Leslie being kind of a bad friend in a (laughs) lot of ways to a lot of people which again like I love that I love that she's not a perfect character but the show frames her behaviors as sort of like almost always in the right Mm -hmm. like we're not asked to critique that often and it starts to also feel really imbalanced because you can like I agree there are ways to write flawed characters and stuff but like Leslie is always forgiven for everything she does and there's always kind of a pathologized reason for it like oh she's just she's she said she's sorry it's just because she cares so much or whatever but like we never get to see Anne be a shitty friend to Leslie except for Maybe one example, which I'll get, I'm saving because it's my, it's my peak episode, but um, we never get to see people um, like Leslie's friends get, kind of get a taste of the other side. Like it's always, you know, Leslie flaking or being too intense or whatever, for whatever reason, or being a little entitled to people. And it just feels very imbalanced. Um, the the other thing with like always portraying Leslie as in the right, which I know uh, I'm sure you I know you also have a lot of feelings about this is like by making the citizens of Pawnee always look really dumb and really ignorant. And one of the easiest ways is to conflate ignorance and stupidity with fatness, because my God, this show has issues with fatness. I literally just got shivers up my like I have goosebumps right now because this gets me so enraged and this is truly as a as a writer and as a performer this is sort of my number one frustration and complaint with sitcoms and comedy across the board. Yeah, to be Even, clear Parks and Rec is not unique in being yes, phobic, yes, absolutely. But it certainly takes the cake. Yes, even even pro- the most progressive show fatness is a punchline no matter what it's with both parks and happy endings it's like my biggest gripe because it is so fucking unnecessary and i understand that like that's how culture is and has been for a really long time but i think that shows like this also perpetuate that and make people feel like it's okay and i have personally been on a journey of body neutrality and you know overcoming disordered eating and quitting diet culture for like a good decade and these shows have been in my ears and eyes for most of that time and I I look at it and it just yes sometimes it makes for a funny punchline but it is the ultimate case of punching down and it's so cheap and it is so fucking damaging. Have you seen Rutherford Falls yet? No. In fact, I kind of, I'd heard the title and I think I mixed it up with something else, but then I saw that it got renewed recently and everyone was really, really, really happy. And people that I respect were really, really happy about it. So I'm like, oh, I should check this out if good people like it. Yeah. So Rutherford Falls, uh, I won't go into it too much because that's not the show we're talking about, but mm-hmm. it is Mike Schur's newest show and oh. he co-created it with uh, Ed Helms and then an, an indigenous writer who has cool. written on all your favorite sitcoms. Um, her name is Sierra Teller Orneals, I believe. Okay. Um, but sh- this show is about basically Ed Helms plays the descendant of like a founder of a town in America and his best friend is an indigenous woman and they've grown up together 
in this small town, but the town's sort of having a reckoning and people are starting to think like, oh, maybe all the old white colonialists weren't the heroes we've always said they were. And it's it's split sort of between his life in this town and you know the people who work at a casino and people who live on the reserve and it is so good and it is so much more real than any Mike Schur show I've ever seen and I think the fact that there is a POV of a co-creator that is not white that is not cis straight male rich Harvard educated makes such a vast difference and it's still really really funny Mm -hmm. but it has this groundedness that's uh, I just think like so superior to anything he's done and one of the the co-lead of it uh Jana is her name I wish I remembered her last name right now um she's amazing and she is like a fat woman a fat Mm. indigenous woman and it's so fascinating how watching that show like it just makes me think, how would this writer and co-star of this show feel being in any of your other shows where fatness is a constant punchline and yeah. obesity is something to be mocked and, you know, used, like you said, as sort of this symbol of bad and lazy. And I'm glad that this show is is different, but I'm just so curious if those conversations have even happened or if it's just sort of this subconscious shifting. Yeah, and it's interesting because Parks like really got away with a reputation as like a really really positive show, and overall, I still do think it is. But it's like it's really easy for us to say that when I'm a person who is not personally affected by that, because like I and I always like try to make sure I'm not um, getting in a lane that is not mine with this, because I am, um, you know, a at times, you know, some people have called me problematically thin, um, and <laughs> hey, that's fine. If, People have whatever they want to say about my body. Be Uh, bigger. I I've tried. I I do miss the gym in that respect. You know, I wasn't one of those people that's like, open the gym. It's my right. But man, I miss having an ass. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Squats, my my love. But um, no, like, but what I I think a lot of people don't realize by looking at me is that I am the only thin person in my family. And uh, you know, my my brother was a beanpole along with me, and then he got in a really good relationship and that's the thing that i wish i wish there was more comedy about the fact that sometimes you get into a good relationship and you gain weight because you're finally happy and 100 oh, percent. Uh, yeah and i think that's like one of my favorite things that i'm like i wish this were a trope because it happens so much in real life um but like i always i always had a hard time with watching that because like my dad is one of the smartest people i know he's a really talented uh, hydroelectric engineer and he's fat. My sister is an incredibly talented photographer and a, a physicist who works in a cancer center and literally saves lives. And she's fat and she's not ignorant and she's not clumsy and she's like she's articulate. And it's just it really bothered or like my mother, who is a bigger woman and is more athletic than my father, who used to be in the army, like and always was athletic and like played baseball with us as a kid and was really into curling when I was a kid. And so like, I have always had a hard time watching this and just like, why do people who look like my family always get portrayed as bad people and idiots? Yes. And and the, the thing is like, there is some really funny comedy in parks about, you know, Sweetums, the candy, yeah. the evil candy factory in town and Paunchburger. But it's like, why does it have to be? 
I just hate the implication that the people of Pawnee don't understand that overeating or drinking a five bajillion liter soda is going to hurt them or be bad for them. And the implication that people are fat because of that, because of their bad food choices. And that people need to be protected from their choices. That's the other thing. The idea that people need to be protected from their choices when, you know what, Paunchburger may be like the evil corporation, but ultimately with body autonomy, if these people want to gouge themselves on a literal child-sized soda, they can. And I, I hate it, to be kind just, of Ron Swanson, but I'm on Ron Swanson's side there. Yes, and it's also just so, to me, and again, this is something that hits very personally for me, but like it is so uh, frustrating because to me it just feels like the most privileged perspective on uh, weight mm-hmm. because you are taking out of the equation like, oh, are the people of Pawnee financially able to fucking go to Whole Foods and do they have the time and the ability to prepare fresh vegetables for themselves every day? Probably not. Like, Mm. why is that not part of the conversation? Why is it, let's take away the bad so the the bad people don't have the option anymore (laughs) instead of being like, well, what can we do to help people, you know, who maybe aren't economically able to eat organic food or whatever? It just feels so, like the lack of intersectionality in that sort of worldview is pretty infuriating. Yeah. And like, that's also what bothers me is part of Les's character is that she loves junk food. And um, (laughs) she, which I think is like one of the cutest things about her as well, but like she loves whipped cream and waffles and candy and she hates salads. She really hates salads, which I think is a really cute, like the the way they do the humor about like, salad sucks. I'm just going to say it. Um, But like, it's it's but it's fine because, because she's thin. She's thin. Yeah. And it's, it is the it is the Lorelai and Rory Gilmore effect. And it's so yeah. infuriating because the things they show, they, the media, uh the TV shows show thin, beautiful women eating on television are so unrealistic. And the the ideal of like, I want a woman who looks so 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 skinny and toned and like she only eats you know a healthy salad and a smoothie but that is boring and not fun mm-hmm. to be around and i want her it's to be also cool. as a person who has lived like that it's not fun to be either <laughs> yes well agreed i can also vouch but like i want her to be cool i want her to be a guy's guy i want i want them to be eating three pizzas and chicken wings and 45 beers like you you can't have it both ways in the real world, but on TV, that has been sort of put up as like, well, that's the ideal woman. A, a, a person who basically, unless you have very specific genes, it's impossible to be. Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's, ooh, it's infuriating to me. I thought it was weird how they, well, I mean, and I will say that there are two principal characters who are bigger, uh, being Jerry, who I don't think that counts as positive portrayals because Jerry is literally the butt of every joke. Mm-hmm. I do think it's really sweet, though, the um, kind of joke that Jerry's wife and daughters are incredibly gorgeous and that his wife just worships him. I think that's so sweet and I just wish they'd done it more. I understand you can't get Christy Brinkley every episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that by the time he dies at the age of 100, she still looks the same. Um, and also that Jerry is the king of his own domain when he's in his home. I mm-hmm. think that's really sweet. Um, and then Donna, who actually is also an incredibly competent and confident person, I just think, and again, this is definitely a lane that is probably not mine, so I'll just kind of make my little appearance here and say it's a bit of a, you know, 
big, beautiful Black woman stereotype. And I'll leave that criticism up to Black critics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And same. I'm, I am a white person. I can't really, like, speak on that. But I do think that Retta as a performer and what she brings to the character helps break through a little bit of what could very easily be a super offensive one-note character. Yeah, I thought it was really good when they started, when they actually decided that um, Retta and Jim O'Hare were part of the principal cast. And so they started mm -hmm. fleshing out Donna. And Donna's backstory is she is very competent. She comes from money. She's getting her real estate license. She's a trained opera singer um, and actually getting her to showcase that. And like, I do think it's fine and probably not that not an offensive stereotype. This thing is like, oh, yeah, genuine's my cousin, by the way. Um. Yeah. And and she's a bit of a fuck girl. Like in the first couple seasons when she's really featured, it is like a constant yeah. running thread that she's like, yeah, I do fine. Like, I'm yeah. all set. Anytime anyone says anything about dating, she's like. I know better than you and I have more sex than you. One of the best one-liners from Donna that is not even a line is when um, Andy is doing his Eagle One. Um, I, I used to have this memorized because it's become like a hockey meme, but like, uh, you know, you'll be, I am Eagle One. You are, um, you know, Anne has been, been there, done that. April is currently <laughs> doing that. Donna is, it happened in a dream once and she just winks at him. And just <laughs> such a wink, anyone can wink, but there are two people who can wink really well and that's Retta and Jessica Walter, RIP. Um, and it's just, it's perfect. The little, tiny little smirk that she does, it's not too much. And I, I love it. I think she's great. She knows how fine she is. Yeah. 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 Wink icons. But you're yeah. right. Like, I, it's just so interesting to think like, and this is this is a way of thinking I did not have 10 years ago. So I it's not that I am putting, you know, I'm I try to be fair with the time things are created in and looking back, it's so easy to be retroactively critical. But it it's really sad to think like, okay, someone like Retta, Retta is reading this week's script and it's full of fat phobic jokes. Mm -hmm. How how is that making her feel? Yeah, you can't even say that hasn't aged well. Like, come on, this was less than 15 years ago. This yeah, is... <laughs> and, and it's just, it's just... It was never funny. It's just one of those, like, final frontiers, I think, on television that it's still, you know, there are shows like Shrill that mm. are incredible, but that is very central to the plot mm. of the show. And then there are shows where fatness is a joke. Yeah. And there's very little where it's just sort of a neutral morally neutral thing about a character you know this isn't a comedy but i am fascinated with the fact that jesse plemons uh just gained weight and i think he initially gained weight for a role but he has essentially stayed stayed heavier and he's not the biggest guy in the world either i would just call him chubby but i i think it's great that he is still getting work without having to lose weight because like I'm thinking of anything he was so chilling in. I love that movie so much. It was a highlight of my lockdown viewing. Um, and also, I love that they didn't make him lose weight for El Camino. Mm -hmm. That This is supposed to take place between the second last and last episodes. And you know what? Let's just assume that Todd, in those six months or whatever it is, gained and lost 50 pounds. Let's just yeah. do, and like no commentary on it, nothing, whatever. And I'm like, you know, it, and maybe it's a bit easier for men, but I do hope that like the I would say like, not maybe. Someone... I would say 100 <laughs> percent. It has been something that is more accepted for men yeah. forever. 
and like just just let someone be a fat guy or let let someone be a fat woman um because in and I'm surprised I just did a control F to make sure, but I think it's crazy that neither of us really mentioned Chris Pratt in our notes. (laughs) Probably had the biggest star-making experience Mm -hmm. of this, like, because even Aubrey Plaza, like, I'd say she was on this, and I also wouldn't say that Aubrey Plaza is, like, a star now, because, like, what makes you a star these days, like, is being in a Marvel movie. Mm -hmm. Being in a big blockbuster franchise, and she has chosen to do a lot of weird indies with her partner and a lot of questionable choices, (laughs) yes, which is, like, great. I respect that so much as an artist, but I think with Chris Pratt... Uh, I was talking to Chris about that, my husband Chris, about this when we were you watching. You were talking to Chris Pratt? <laughs> I was chatting with the Prattster uh, when we were watching episodes this week. And it's just so funny because in my mind, Andy Dwyer is such a great character. And he 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 kills that character. Like, it's so, so good. And the new modern Republican hunter married to Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter left on a Ferris Chris Pratt is like a different person in my mind. I honestly don't even consider them like the same human. I I sometimes think like celebrities have always been bad people. Like if you look at like John Wayne and stuff, he was (laughs) such a terrible person and we named an airport after him. But I'm like, man, I miss not knowing anything about celebrities and what they oh, thought. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I really I, do. I laugh sometimes. I try to be gracious, but I laugh sometimes with Gen Z, how intense they are and quick to cancel culture and the standards they hold any public figure to, which is not a bad thing. But mm-hmm. I just think like, yeah, but everyone forever? And yes. people were worse in the 80s and 90s? Oh, I had the greatest experience recently because, I mean, I like I, I want to get to an episode where I don't bring up chess, but this is not the episode. <laughs> um, I was doing some research on Bobby Fischer and who he was as a person. And I thought, I, I first was looking up things he said, and I was like, oh, that was really cool. He publicly opposed the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Okay. Then you read one paragraph down. And he was fascinated by Hitler and the Nazis. And he was just hardcore anti-Semitic. Like he said, I mean, now that said, he was still buddies with Judith Pogar, who was Jewish. But I mean, a lot of people have Jewish friends and are anti-Semitic. So like he, I'm like, oh, Bobby Fischer was like pretty close to a Nazi. Like he really hated Jewish people. And so I'm like, now I like, but we didn't know that about or not that we didn't know that because he said these things publicly, but like just there wasn't this kind of permanent record of what people said and thought. And so an like, immediate now, access yeah. too. And, and like one of the things that I almost resent Parks and Rec for with um, with Andy as a character is like, I feel like by the end of it, a lot of it was supposed to be about how much you're supposed to adore Andy and how adorable you're supposed to find him. And I do even think like removing the Chris Pratt of it all, I think by the end of it, it did get a little much for me. Um, I, I don't like kind of being reminded of how adorable a character is all the time and how <laughs> lovable they're supposed to be. But um, I, I mean, I mean, I felt that about Leslie too, about how much I'm always supposed to love her and agree with her. Um, and I think it's they they realize that Chris Pratt is charming. Unfortunately, he is very charming. And mm-hmm. so they just leaned on that a lot. And so you almost feel resentful when you know how much of a charmless man Chris Pratt truly is. Because you feel betrayed like duped, though, like, yeah because we always we always think we know celebrities we think we know them as people and we think chris pratt is andy dwyer like that's just how our minds work because that's the lens through which we know him 
Yeah, as someone who has acted and knows a lot of actors, I will never forget in theater school, I had such a bizarre aha moment in my first film, like on camera acting class I ever did. This guy in our class was not everyone's favorite. He was a lot. Uh, Really thought he knew a lot about the world at age 21. And anyway, we did on camera. When you first do on camera stuff, a big thing is your hit. Like, what do you come across as on screen. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're really like. When people see you on screen, what is their first sort of perception of what you are? And theoretically, that's the casting you're going to get. And he did his and he looked so charming and so handsome and he came across so well. And myself and my friend just looked at each other and we're like, oh, wait, are all the people we love from film and television, not exactly how they come across in interviews and yeah. online. Like, it was just Truly. such a moment of me being like, right, actors. Yeah. And I still, I, I work in the business and I still have to remind myself of that all the time because yeah. it's so easy. Like, that's kind of a performer's job is to present. Yeah. Well, that's why if like, and also like, I mean, Rob Lowe, kind of a you know, centrist dick, um, but I, and being that like, I mean, with like a weird people from sex other, tape yeah. history, people from other eras know Rob Lowe, obviously from many different things, but I think millennials more know Rob Lowe from Parks and Rec. And so mm-hmm. like, I just think he's Chris Traeger and Chris Traeger is such a strong character, uh, or, or even Adam Scott. If I find out that Adam Scott is a dick, which I think I've heard he is kind of a dick. Oof. I can't. I couldn't handle that. Maybe. Yeah. But like, because Ben, like, what a great character. What a great yes. character he ben is. Wyatt, ben Wyatt is incredible. And I do feel like once Leslie has kind of grown and grown up and been sort of, you know, rebuffed by Mark, she is just so much, so much more ready to be in a wonderful equal partnership and to yeah. be more more herself and Ben is the perfect complement to her because he has also been through his traumatizing ice town years and he is I have an ice town t-shirt. Oh, so good. <laughs> uh but like they they've both had to kind of like overcome their own little personal growth shit. And they're both total nerds and total weirdos and can support each other in that. And I just, I I am someone who projects way too much when I watch stuff. I just am instantly like, I am these characters and these things are happening to me. But their trajectory as a couple is like one of my favorite things in the show. Uh, I also love, and I'm I'm going to really show my hands here that I obviously very much love Breaking Bad, but who doesn't? Um, I love that his dad is, is Jonathan Banks. I wish he yes. came back more. Yes. Um, I also think from a writing perspective, what I really like about Ben is I think he was, I don't want to say he wasn't flanderized because like every comedy character gets flanderized. I think he is, except Anne, because Anne had nowhere to go. Um, <laughs> but I think Ben is the least flanderized of all the characters. Um, the only thing is like, I'd say it took maybe, because he, when he showed up at the tail end of season two, maybe it wasn't this way, but by like the I think it's the fifth episode of season three, uh, the one where they're doing the press tour. It is well established that Ben is an incredibly awkward person <laughs> who is afraid of cops, who like he like has no idea how to interact with people. Like I really love because like I'm perhaps much more extroverted than the character of Ben. But when I uh, when he introduces himself and he's just like, hey, you know what I like? 
calzones. I'm like, oh, that feels, it almost hurts to watch because I'm the person like, okay, how do, how do normal people make conversation? Shit, shit, food. Hey. Totally. I feel, I feel like Ben's external interactions at almost any time with new people is like my inner anxiety voice at all times and it's so fun and comforting and I think because we know he is a smart person who's good at his job Mm -hmm. and he can like have normal relationships it makes it that much more fun because there's no real danger there other than like oh strangers are gonna think he's a weirdo yes the when he's talking to nick kroll as the douche and nick kroll's just or the douche is trying to make conversation and he's like yeah how are you liking it in pawnee and he's like oh yeah lots of cars not not too not too many (laughs) like it's um i've said before and again the greg daniels connection like how every millennial every millennial says their dad reminds them of king of hank hill but actually i would say there's a lot of parallels between my father and ben wyatt like he goes from hyper competent to the second he's in a social situation just because because my dad's an engineer like that's what happens uh the second he's in a social situation he just like doesn't know what to say and that a a hilarious thing about Ben is that the only way Ben really can express himself very well when he's under pressure is through anger and that's kind of my dad like if my dad would have a really hard time like asking someone a question or whatever but he would have a really easy time snapping and telling someone shut the fuck up you know that is so funny and like I I think similar to the Jerry thing where Jerry is the butt of the joke so they make his outside life amazing a dream life ben being sort of the king of the accountant nerds <laughs> is such a fun way to do that too oh, to be like that. everyone thinks he's boring and a nerd all the time except the nerds think he's god you had the amazing thing in your notes about like the best minor characters and one of my favorite minor characters is the character of barney the oh, accountant. Yeah. he's fantastical and love him i i like his little giggles i like because like I actually do know a lot of accountants like that. (laughs) I just love that he he is always hopeful Ben will come into the fold. He is always willing to like do do anything for Ben to come in. And even with Ben letting them down again and again, doesn't matter. He's still like, you're still great. You're still a fucking stand up comedian to us, buddy. Yes, calculator. Um, <laughs> I I um I work now for a trade magazine reporting on the manure industry, and uh, the we actually had have a contest for our event every year, like come up with your best manure rejected manure slogans. And so I just I brought all these to my dad last time I was visiting. I was like, this is gonna kill, because like, <laughs> like the this the simple one liners and how entertained they are. I'm like, no, I don't think you guys realize how true to life that is. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, so Ben White, and I would say like probably the most jiffable character in many ways. Like I think the, and especially became relevant during lockdowns. Like you think a person with depression could make this? <laughs> yes, Ben, unemployed Ben, love it. Calzone yes. obsessed Ben, amazing. Cones of Dunshire Ben, incredible. Lil Sebastian hating Ben. Yes, who among <laughs> us has not? had that experience of not enjoying some kind of cultural phenomenon or something all of your community is fucking crazy for and you're just like ah okay man i guess i guess we're all doing this it's funny i'm looking at your list of your favorite minor characters and i would happily go through all of them there's one i wanted to um zoom in on which is jean ralphio and i agree probably one of the best bit characters one thing that i is like 
my biggest disappointment in the show is I thought introducing the character of his sister was too much. I thought mm-hmm. she was a little too exaggerated. Although it was a great gateway to bring in Henry Henry Winkler Winkler as their dad, who he rules anything he's in, he rules. I love that he's having a nice little career renaissance now. But um it's such a shame because it did get Jenny Slate onto the show. And Jenny Slate rules. Like she's a comedian that I just I hope has her Amy Poehler era someday because mm-hmm. she is that Agreed. good. But uh, yeah, I wish that she had been a better character. But I yeah, totally was, agree with you about John Ralphio. Funny when I was writing out secondary characters, I was like the Sapperstein's because I love Jenny Slate so much, and I thought about it, and I thought, no, I don't really like Mona Lisa. Yes, money please has become a quote that I will probably say until <laughs> I die. But I yes. agree, it's like a little over the top. And it also felt a little, not forced, but her whole relationship with Tom, just, I don't know. I I also think I could have done without it. Yeah, I mean, Tom uh, also, like, it seemed that they were trying, always trying really hard to pair him with someone. I think that Tom, no one liked Tom Ann. No one liked that. Um, And I think it's hard because I actually think that Aziz Ansari, and I mean, who he has as a person, like, that's such a... Such a weird, uncomfortable thing that I don't even think it really is worthy of discussion. <laughs> we don't need to get into that. No, but um, I think his charm and who he is as an actor and his appeal is so specific mm-hmm. that I don't know if it was always right for Parks and Rec and that the sense that you can't just pair him with anyone either. Mm-hmm. And then because and who they made Tom into at times, he became so irredeemable as a person that I'm like, I don't know if I want to see him with anyone. Yeah, I mean, well, you could say that about, I think, a lot of the male characters in the show. Andy Dwyer. Like, Andy was a monster for years. Andy, his whole relationship with Anne, which is like, great, I'm glad he got to be happy by marrying someone 10 years younger than him. But like, yeah, he was like pretty shitty. If you knew him in real life... Like, you would distance yourself from that person, not be rooting for him for years yeah. and years. So I know. And that that's something that I think comedy has to contend with a lot because yeah. bad behavior tends to be funny. It does. That's It's it's a hard cross to bear. Like, a um, friend of the show, Mike Stevens, always said, like, a lot of comedy will always be inherently harmful because, like, comedy comes from pain and comedy comes from exploitation. And so you just have to make sure that you're not... Um, doing it in a way that's going to cause like permanent damage to someone and um yeah with andy like it's a really good thing that they wrote him to be aggressively adorable i'll say that because you don't like you don't perceive what he's doing as terrible but yeah and i i think he i'm sorry to interrupt i think he was a character who was initially not meant to be a series regular and then chris pratt's so charming how could we get rid of him but you're kind of written into this hole of written writing this terrible man Mm -hmm. and i what i just can't stand and i've written a whole essay about this but like when people call that character development it's like well no that's not character development because it's not the it's not one book within within which he's contained Mm -hmm. he was taken apart and we we can rebuild him we have the technology and rewritten as essentially a new person Mm -hmm. so um i I felt bad because i felt like he got all the development or quote-unquote development and Anne got nothing like it sucks because i think Anne and leslie are really great but i don't think they ever shaped Anne into a person who was capable of existing on her own and carrying her own storylines well, Anne was just the straight man and they took Mark away and she was literally one of the only straight man characters for mm. most of the show. And that's just 
that's a really hard person to want to write for and to want to develop because it's fucking boring. And I think at times there were um, a few really good instances of Anne doing something weird in which like she herself was incapable of being all that weird or all that impulsive and that became the joke and I just wish they'd done that more often like a great one is when she breaks up with Chris and she starts spiraling and her idea of spiraling is putting a red streak in her hair <laughs> yeah like, totally or, I forget which episode this was but there there were I think fun times when Anne could be kind of like dumb isn't even the word but like a little dopey where she's just like she's helping out with Leslie's campaign and she's just like oh my god, this marker smells like berries. And like, I liked that. And I wish we'd gotten to see more of that. But it is so hard because you've taken everyone else. Like when you have a straight man already, it's hard to be the straight man. And then you flanderize everyone else. And Anne's kind of on an island that like, it's it's hard because it made her leaving. Her leaving should have been this really emotional thing. And it kind of took the emotion away from it because it's like, okay, and cartoon land is no longer the right place for you. And it was like a cartoon world rejecting her. And that yeah. kind of sucked. I, I really appreciated when they would kind of point to the fact that Anne's too pretty to be funny. Like she never had to develop <laughs> humor as a coping mechanism. Love that. Mm -hmm. But in general, it was like, well, yeah, if she's humorless, what is she doing on this really, really funny, funny show in this funny world? Yeah. Oh, poor Anne. Um, <laughs> And then I guess the last character to really talk about, and I like how we're kind of going through it by the characters, because this was such a mostly unchanged cast, which mm -hmm. is great. But Ron Swanson, who I am, um, like, obviously was written to be a big stereotype, but I actually think he got probably the best development to me, because a lot of it, especially when he met Diane... And uh, Lucy Lawless, I love you. Incredible. Um, Brilliant yes. stroke of casting. Like I yeah. never in a million years could I have thought of that. And it works so well. Such a great fleshed out character, frankly, for someone who was so minor and didn't appear that much. Mm -hmm. um, but because the last season was all about how he learns to love others. And it wasn't this big, like we're defrosting Ron. It's like, and it's not Ron learns to love the way Leslie does. It's Ron learns to love in the Ron Swanson way. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really special. Um, also, I will say in the last season, which I generally think the last season is pretty strong. It's much stronger than the sixth. Um, but the conflict between Ron and Leslie, I was on Ron's side because the idea like, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a NIMBY or a YIMBY. I um I don't believe that overdevelopment will solve housing problems, but I think when Ron says like you built a beautiful park and people want to live next to it, I think that that makes perfect sense. And the idea that he should have not torn down Anne's house, which she didn't live in anymore, just because of Leslie's feelings about it, like, and that was, I think, where we were at a point also where we were supposed to be on Leslie's side, mm -hmm. and I completely disagree. And I'm like, see, this is kind of what makes Leslie less likable now is she believes that her feelings are the ultimate thing that need to be respected, and that like, and and hey, he saved the door, so that was nice of him. Um, I I also I love that we were kind of kept in the dark about that the details of the conflict because yeah, I think we. Oh, morning star I don't think, you just think of burgers 
Yes, I do. <laughs> Hello, veggie gang. Uh, I I think that it made us sort of default to being on Leslie's side, just assuming she was in the right. And mm. then when we fought, by the time we finally get the details of what happened, we kind of realize like, oh, this is Leslie being emotionally immature and also really hanging on to the past mm. and not being ready to like move on, which mm. is so understandable but like pretty childish. Yeah. And and I love, like, I also think it was so fun to see those characters in conflict. Like, and I just the thought episode it was a- where they reunite too oh. and they get drunk together. I love, I love a good getting drunk episode. Oh, trapped in yeah. a, trapped in the parks room together. Like so, so delightful. Yeah. I, I don't drink anymore. It just And it wasn't out of any like super serious reason. I just stopped drinking in January and realized I really liked how I felt when I wasn't drinking. But there are certain episodes that I'm I'm just like, oh, it's not alcohol I miss. It's alcohol with people that I miss. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It can unlock that sort of goofiness and levity that's yes. hard to otherwise sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it was so interesting that the Morningstar conflict, it turned out to be kind of this like, oh, I like almost underwhelming thing but then again you know you you said it's emotional immaturity and one kind of interesting thing i always forget is that moving on is a lesson that a lot of people don't learn until adulthood Mm -hmm. and i think the only way you learn it as a kid is if you experience a lot of death frankly and or you move a lot Mm -hmm. and in my case it was the latter i actually didn't experience death at all until i was like 17 um but then i i and then I had more than enough. But when no, I no braggies, yeah, death. People close to me dying. Queen, we um, get it. Ugh. Yes, we get it. I, I, everything I touch turns to crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I moved a lot as a kid, and uh, I the first time I moved that I could remember because I moved like as a toddler, but um, was when I was ten, and that's a really formative age. And I remember like a month or so later going back to visit my friends, and they didn't seem that excited to see me. And my mom just kind of said. Well, because their life didn't change. Mm-hmm. Your life changed a lot because you're in a new town and stuff and you had, but their life didn't change. Mm-hmm. And kind of thinking like, oh, okay, like I was one tiny part of these people's lives. And then, you know, so when I moved again at 16 and then when my parents moved when I was 19, like it was, I was just that much more ready for it. And that like the harsh lesson that life goes on without you and people move on without you and realizing that it is actually very possible for Leslie, who is in her mid thirties to not know that yeah she's she's lived in the same town her whole life she it seems like has been working vaguely with the same people her whole life like Mm -hmm. she has had a very very stable life for a long time yeah although it was um an interesting thing and i i also wish they'd elaborated on this more um but uh when she said that when she reveals in the episode where she gets married that her father died when she was 10 Mm -hmm. and it was it was actually a great thing to because like I had always I think a lot of people had wondered like what was Leslie's dad's situation. We knew obviously that her dad was no longer around and that, you know, her mother still lives in Pawnee. But yeah, where's her father? Did they divorce? Like, and so I, I was like, that would have been a really more interesting thing to elaborate on. But I not everything needs to be built on as a character trait. And I do think at least it explains why like Leslie pretty much mainly raised by a mother, you know, has this like you know has this need to be a strong woman need to do everything on her own um and then also possibly uh uses work as an avoidance with her hoarding and uh almost undoubtedly yeah yes yeah and i think like i think in 
bringing it back to Ron, like, of course, I love the character of Ron Swanson. And Nick Offerman is incredible. Like, it's He's how great. how could you not love Nick Offerman? Mm-hmm. But I do think it really brings it back to the show being developed in whatever 2008 versus our the year of our Lord 2021 right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you how you set up a character like a Ron Swanson, like an apolitical libertarian straight cis white man who's making good money and doesn't care about other people. Like it does hit very differently now. It does. And like, I think they were very smart in not making him uh, fall in with conspiracy theorists. It's kind of like um, Dale from King of the Hill. Like they say, like, you can Mm -hmm. do Dale in 1996. Like if you did Dale in 2021, he would be a racist or like the only way like Dale is not that Dale is a semi realistic portrayal of conspiracy theorists, except he's not a racist. Like, yeah, Yeah. um, you you know, he never once says the word globalist. So like, he's fine. like with Ron, he like because he you know says like, oh I I'm not affiliated with any religion. Oh like I am fine with uh, homosexuality and people loving who they love and stuff. And so like because they kind of work overtime to make him likable, I think you can pull that off. But everything is so much more polarized now in 2016. And like I I'm not one of those people that thinks politicians went bad before Trump. I would say that like. <laughs> If you were to just look from a body count uh, and how they changed America yeah. basis, I also think George W. Bush was a way worse president than Donald Trump. Hate to say it. Yes. Um, and like the difference but, between yeah. most Democratic and Republican leaders in the states is pretty small. No, no. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it's more just the way that um, the Trump era um, activated so many people on like a grassroots level and suddenly um, who you voted, who how you aligned politically became everything about your personality and became a justification for how you treat others. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it is not enough that, you know, like I'm not bothered by gay people. Like there are some people that like really genuinely believe that like you shouldn't be able to hold hands with your boyfriend in the street or i should be able to leave tire skid marks on a rainbow crosswalk and stuff and so i think the the activation at a grassroots level of horrible people is what gives political identities so much more baggage Mm -hmm. and so you could 10 years ago portray someone who identified as a libertarian and there's no baggage there Mm -hmm. because it doesn't feel dangerous and it now, doesn't it doesn't nec- say it. it feels dangerous. Yes, it doesn't necessarily feel like symbolic of all of their other beliefs. Yep. Where now it, it very much does. And the the idea of someone like Leslie, even even if it's just sort of a broad, vague neoliberalism, like mm-hmm. sh- her being close friends with someone who doesn't care at all and thinks like he's perfectly fine to just live his life alone and not helping anyone and whatever like it seems so much harder to imagine it's like rbg and scalia being friends which is like oh there's something nice about that but also he's done terrible things and he empowers terrible things and like uh no i i love nick offerman one of my favorite nick offerman bit parts by the way is he plays one of the heavy bodyguards in um in sin city um oh my gosh yeah, which I'm kind of like, does that movie hold up or was that just cool because I was 16? Like, Ooh, yeah, <laughs> I have not seen that for probably 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it's I the Brittany Murphy of it all makes me want to rewatch it. But yeah. no, I thought he had such a lovely ending. Like, um, I, and I think, you know, 
It's so funny because I am not as into season five as you are, but you are right when you list the the secondary characters who got so fleshed out and had such great moments during that season. You are 100% right. I love Shauna Mulway Tweep. Oh, Shauna. I could watch a whole show of her. Love She's Shauna. such a weird little tragedy. Like, oh. And it's like just peel- she is a great minor character who's an example of like peeling back the layers and like learning just a little bit at a time that makes her more and more tragic because even in the first time she's introduced she's a little bit of a mess because you see that I mean I'm sorry I've been a small like community reporter and sleeping with a source is like one of the worst or even someone who works with a source is one of the worst (laughs) things you could do oh Shauna um and you get to a point where she's like dating a guy who has a second family (laughs) that's pretty great Oh. Um, or no, is that her father? Like she was her father, part of her father's se- secret second family. Yes, 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 that's exactly what it was. And then the Tammies are fantastic. I do wish we'd gotten to see Tammy one more than once because Patricia Clarkson is a legend and amazing, and she doesn't get to be funny a lot. No, so. and she's so good in this. Yeah, but like Megan, I normally don't like stunt casting because obviously Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman, real life partners. They're so funny together. Oh my god! Like it's she... unhinged. It's outrageous. Like I don't yes. understand how everyone wasn't just cracking up the whole time they shot those scenes. Yeah. Tammy too is kind of like sideshow Bob in the sense that she showed up just enough. Like mm-hmm. kind of you have your once a season Tammy two episode and that's it. And I love it. Oh uh, yeah, I I really I agree. Sometimes when someone is cast and you know sort of the personal history or background, it takes away from it. And in this case, yeah. it only made me love them as characters and as humans so much more. Yeah. And and I do, I agree with you. I love Jen Barkley. And I love that now everyone's kind of starting to recognize how great Ka- Catherine Hahn is. Oh. Um, she She's an actress that feels like she should be so much bigger than she is. Yeah, I've had a crush on Catherine Hahn for like truly like 12 years. And I am very happy she's getting sort of her moment to shine. But I agree. It seems bizarre that it's now like she's been this good forever. And Jen Barkley is such an interesting character because she is neither a good nor a bad person. Mm -hmm. And she's just a consummate professional about everything. And I think that's such a fun way to write a character. Yeah, I I forget when this was, but I had a friend say, uh, you remind me of Jen Barkley. I, oh. like, I honestly take that as a compliment, even though I'm nowhere near as successful or together as she as that character is. Mm. But I thought it was so funny because I was like, you compared me to a Katherine Hahn character. Like, I love you for that. I, I don't even care what you mean by it. And, you know, it's funny because there's one line she has that only a couple years later I experienced, which was um, her saying to when she tells Leslie to like dream bigger, why are, why do you only care about city council? And then she says, and it's it's definitely a line for laughs, but I don't care enough about you to, to lie, lie to you. Oh. And I had a similar experience when I was uh, getting ready for the Agency of the Year Awards in 2019, one of the last times that I was ever at like a gala um and probably the last or a long time because i'm not in that industry anymore um they served me uh whiskey in a highball glass Hmm. and at least three shots of it so uh danger danger good way to go out (laughs) um but i my my colleague i turned to him because i there was the dress that i was wearing something about it and the way it felt it almost looked like a maternity dress 
And I have no qualms about looking bigger. I do have qualms about looking pregnant because I don't want people to ask about yeah. things <laughs> like that. And I'm like, we're not really close friends. And I'm like, hey, you don't care enough about me to lie to me. Does this look like a maternity dress? And he told me no, but also he like, it, the, the reaction was like, yeah, that's right. I don't care enough about you to lie to you. And I like having those kinds of relationships. You often find them with colleagues. Yes, but... there's so much value to it. Because... <laughs> but it's such a funny joke for yes, that reason. And it's so, it's so true. Like, if you love someone, even if you're trying to be real with them, you're not seeing them the way everyone mm -hmm. else sees them. It's why yeah. I get infuriated with my husband anytime I ask him to give me feedback on like self-tapes or headshots or anything to pick. He's like, well, they're all good. And I'm like, no, they're not. Yeah. I know they're not. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I love Jen Barkley as a character. She doesn't overstay her welcome. She comes back just when she's needed. Um, mm -hmm. the, one, the one character on your minor characters list that I do think overstays his welcome in the sense that I don't think he should have been welcome ever is Jeremy Jam. I hate Jam oh. so much. I know he's polarizing. It's so funny. I love Jam, but I think <laughs> that is me as an actor being like, yeah. this would be such a fun part to play. Like can, playing that cartoonish that. villain mm -hmm is such a joy. I do think the times when I like Jam as a character is when you get to his pain yes. as a person. Yes. Especially like in the in the last season when he's, you know, been in a relationship with Tammy and that's a whole other thing, but like when you start to see like the uh, and I know it's a very kind of elementary level analysis, but someone uh, a bully character and their roots being pain is a great it's a great thing to explore and something that i wish people did more often because even though it's a very simplistic reading of bad people we still don't get it very often because it's easier to just see jam as only a villain but yeah i just think he was someone who was basically seemingly created to make leslie's actions seem justified Look all the better, time yeah that's... and he just got worse and worse <laughs> all the time and removed the show from reality too much yes and it was sort of a shift when the show gets to the really heightened silly place which mm -hmm. i enjoy to a degree but there's definitely a line where it when it feels so ungrounded it takes something away for sure mm -hmm. And then another thing you mentioned in your notes that I really want to make sure we don't um, we don't ignore is how many writers um, came out of the show. Like you're you're so right. I um, am so sad that this show was on sort of before the boom of everyone having a podcast because I feel like we could have benefited so much from a Parks and Rec, like, behind-the-scenes kind of podcast or writer's room podcast, it blows my mind how many good writers wrote on this show. And, yeah, I, I listed a bunch out because I was, mm. like, just thinking off the top of my head, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a bajillion, but, like, Katie Diffold, Harris Whittles, Alan Yang, Aisha Muhammad, who went on to do The Good Place and is, like, a Mike Schur staple, um, Joe Mandy, Megan Amram, Chelsea Peretti, Jen Statsky, Emily Spivey, and, like, it's so many funny funny talented I love writers Megan Amram so much yes oh I love that gosh. she finally got on the Simpsons like, yes her, her Simpsons episodes are actually one of the best uh, her first Simpsons episode is one of the best recent episodes she is so talented and so funny but she is also a privileged white person who went to Harvard and that's another thing with this writer's room <laughs> and a lot of the Mike Schur and Greg Daniels shows they yeah. are both Harvard grads 
a lot of their writers have been white. A lot of their writers, even who aren't white, have gone to Ivy League schools and come from a very specific background, which to a degree, like I understand wanting to have smart, clever comedy writers, of course, mm-hmm. but it kind of, as someone who did not have that background and who is not c- coming into the comedy world like that, like it kind of bums me out too. That's why I so, and I I realize I put it on the pedis, on a pedestal a lot considering it's far from a perfect show, but I really like one thing about King of the Hill, which is that King of the Hill, you have the Harvardy Greg Daniels of it all, and you have him balanced out by the non-prestige of Mike Judge, who, mm-hmm. yes, white guy, but I feel like... Class is also very important. Oh, God, yeah, because like, and especially in, I think Parks and Rec is a great microcosm for it. You can get a lot into identity politics and then realize that a lot of these people still are the brainchildren of privileged Harvard people. And that affects how they write things. And that's also why something like, I mean, I know for what Roseanne became, Roseanne the person became, like Roseanne was a revolutionary show, even though it was a show about white people. You compare that to, say, The Cosby Show and Roseanne, I think, was a show that resonated with middle America so much more, uh, mm-hmm. despite being about white people. So, I mean, it's it's uh, there's no I, I think uh, it shouldn't be either or it shouldn't be either representation or class. Uh, yes. Believe it or not, there are uh, people who didn't go to Harvard who are people of color. But Shocking. somehow I don't. Um, and they know how to write. That can't be. That can't what? Be right. um, yeah, it's. It's so hard, too, because, and again, I keep coming, like, I just did three straight episodes about The Simpsons, so I've got The Simpsons on, <laughs> on the brain. But um, the other hard thing with The Simpsons, also in Notoriously Harvardy Writer's Room, was that the first time they had a showrunner who was, or the first time in a long time, they had a showrunner who was not an Ivy League educated guy, and he de-Harvardified the writer's room. Uh, it was Mike Scully. And unfortunately... You actually did see the effect in him de-Harvardifying the writer's room, which is not that it became less funny, but it became broader and less clever and stuff. And so I think that soured a lot of people and kind of like, well, this is why you need to have educated writers and stuff. And um, I'll say that maybe when you've established a series style of humor, then, yeah, like the the keeping people within that pedigree might be a little more important. I, it's not impossible, but um I think for a brand new show and stuff, like, I think you do need to start fresh. And this is why also, like, maybe comedies weren't meant to last super long because maybe we can usher in new blood and new talent. Absolutely. And I think, like, I think there's so much value to pairing people from vastly different backgrounds. It doesn't have to be an either or. And I think this is something Saturday Night Live has done for ages, although it's been historically very white, very straight, very male. They have always been like, we're going to get our Harvard batch and then we're going to get our improvisers and our stand-ups who like come from the other side of the Ivy League tracks. And it's the wider and broader your point of view and your experience of the world in your room, the better your show is going to be. Yeah, that's also why I think and one of the characters uh, and and another one of your minor character shout outs that I love is Joan Calamezzo. And I think. Mo Collins is so funny and could have been um, like 
Amy Poehler, Tina Fey level famous, except that she came off the Mad TV circuit and not SNL. 100%. Like I was in high school when Mad TV, I think just, I think Mad TV ended while I was in high school. I can't remember when it actually ended, but like it was seen as the lowbrow to SNL's highbrow. And I don't actually think SNL is that highbrow, especially when you look now at like their Gen Z hospital skit and shit. Like, yeah, it's not. What a. I know they say the best SNL is when you were in high school. I don't think any high school students now would think SNL is funny. Um, But um, yeah, like Mad TV was seen as like the lowbrow thing. And so I do feel like um, Mo Collins, who is so funny and can play so many different kinds of characters. I really love her character on Arrested Development because she has this like gentle dopiness about wait her. who is she on arrested development why can't she, i think of that she is starla the business model oh yeah yeah like i i just love her her line reading as so, such simple things like where's your pee like she's she and um or her weird obsession with quincy jones that um which uh rashida jones quincy jones's daughter there's a parks and rec uh connection it all it all <laughs> comes full circle baby yeah, but like that's that's such a different character from Joan Calamezzo, who like the montage of Ron hosting her show and taking her call. <laughs> so she, that is like Parks and Rec doesn't do a lot of montages, but that is one of the best ones. Oh, and Joan is just so great in that again, she's the kind of the butt of the joke. It's kind of making fun of her and what a hot mess express she is. <laughs> but She's so confident and so happy and like her life seems pretty much exactly to be the way she wants it. <laughs> and I think they just did such a good job of balancing that kind of thing. And and she was really good at like because I think they besides Anne, because Anne never got to do anything fun, um, they paired they played Joan off of pretty much every character. I think Ron was the last one to play her off play off of her. And um everyone like she had such good chemistry with everyone i think the absolute like top three line readings of the show one of them would have to be when she says i'm gonna go powder my nose amongst other things and he leaves she leaves and ben just looks right at tom and goes is she gonna go powder her vagina (laughs) and like i can't obviously he doesn't say it like that because i managed to take the charm out of like i said i can't act um but i thought it was the way he says it and he he's so good at acting with his eyes because like he has those very big almost goldfish like eyes and um fuck that that one sends me every time oh oh it's so good and and also the revelation there that she's divorced now and Tom's yes. always flirted with her being like it's it's harmless it's harmless and then suddenly it's not harmless and the like joke danger that's in that is so funny. Yeah. So I think we have barreled toward the conclusion of when we feel the peak was. And Christy, guess go first, because that's how we do things in this household. So when do you feel Parks and Rec peaked? This feels like a trap. Uh, I had a really (laughs) hard time trying to nail this down because I do think the show has lots of peaks and it kind of keeps reinventing itself again and again. And like you, like I kind of enjoy the last season, even though it's weird and wacky. And I really enjoy those first couple seasons. But I think like for me, peak, peak parks is right around episode 505. Because in that episode, Ron and Diane are together. And it's the it's the Halloween episode where he they take the kids trick or treating and he breaks the kids tiara (laughs) and she gets really mad at him and he doesn't get it. And it's sort of this moment for him to decide, like, 
this is hard now. I've never had a real healthy relationship, clearly. (laughs) Am I going to like put in the work to do this? I didn't want to be a father. Am I going to figure out what parenting it like? It's such a pivotal moment. And I mean, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've watched the show, no spoilies, but like that ends up being a wonderful, fulfilling part of his life. And he ends up having a family and being a family person. And it's so beautiful for him. So that happens. Also in this end episode, rent swag is invented. And I think that really symbolizes such a move for Tom. And, and in that way, sort of all of the parks department around this time is starting to if not move on yet, at least grow and other things are coming up and other things are becoming kind of important. And, you know, in in the whole Rent-A-Swag saga, Tom just becomes so much more of a grown-up and mm-hmm. he starts to give a shit about things, even in his Tom Haverford way. It, it's really big. And then Ben and Leslie get engaged. And I am such a softy romantic. And personally, I I cried at that. Oh, oh, me too. I cried watching it again this week. Uh, But I would rather see characters who I love, who love each other, get together, even if it means there's going to be less conflict and less storyline there than them just break up for no reason. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my biggest pet peeves when shows are like, oh, no. I guess we'll just make up a reason they can't be together again or something happens again. I would rather them just be happy. And so the fact that they just let them be together and that outside of just romance and their relationship, it really signified Ben choosing Leslie and choosing a life with her over this job potential with Jen Barkley and this huge career potential. It was like, no, whatever the work is, whatever career is, This is like my person and this is who's important and what's important to me. And I just think that's so beautiful and so wonderful. And yeah, so right around like I love a lot of the stuff before it. I love a lot of the stuff after it. But this is sort of the part where I feel like if the show ended here, I'd be happy for the characters and I'd kind of be happy to walk away. Yeah. And it's interesting because the longer I've been doing this show, which is all of, you know, six months or whatever, but um, uh, I realized that I kind of have two ideas of what a peak is. There's the peak in like, when is the saturation of quality and stuff and things will maybe go a little downhill after that. And then where is the point where it could have slash should have ended? And I think I um, always have an idea of the latter, but I don't consider that the peak. And Mm -hmm. so I actually agree with you fully about that episode and that that felt like the natural conclusion of the show. Because one of the things about um, after that, with things like rent a swag and the idea of Ben getting a new job and like how after that there was a weird period where, you know, Ben was hopping around to a few different things. I still think there it was a big problem for the writing of the show when the universe was expanded far too broadly outside of the Parks Department. There was just too much to handle. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I always liked about Parks and Rec was that it was so small. And it was so contained. Uh, So I thought like that could have been your series finale. And that's awesome because there's a decent conclusion for pretty much everyone except Andy and April, who are relatively static as characters anyway. Yeah. But that's Andy and April are another example of I'm happy they just let them get together instead of a 
years long, will they, won't they, Pam and Jim sort of thing. I love that they're like, you know what? They're young and dumb and impulsive. They probably would fucking do something like this. And as someone who got married really, really young, it's like, yeah, I love to see it. And I love that it doesn't have to be dramatic. It's just like, yeah, they are still irresponsible idiots. They're just doing it together. Yeah. Um, my, um, so my peak in terms of the quality, I am not saying that the series should have ended after this, but to me, this was, I don't think parks would ever be this good. A combination of things after this is a season three episode. I forget which number it is, but it's toward the end of the third season Mm -hmm. and it is the fight. And I love the fight. It is the episode about the first fight that Leslie and Anne have as a, as a couple, Mm. um, and the, I mean, that one does kind of go outside the Parks Department enough because that was back when the Snake Hole Lounge was a bit of a set piece, um, which I think, um, like I said, I love a good characters getting drunk episode. And I I said Parks and Rec doesn't do a lot of montages. This was the best montage it ever did, the snake juice montage, because even like, first of all, the way the characters go through that montage, um, not only is it very everything they do in that montage very true to their characters like andy needs to sing and uh leslie is you know crying about Anne. but those are also very common drunk archetypes have mm-hmm. you ever have you ever been 16 through 26 and gotten drunk with a group of people because that will happen every someone is going to sing and then nickelback creed style and um someone is going to be crying about a fight someone is you know gonna be speaking in their mother tongue um and uh ron in the little pillbox hat um i think that was also the introduction of um two great little characters janet snakehole and burt macklin fbi iconic um, <laughs> iconic and, the shot after of because I also I love a good characters getting drunk episode. I love a good characters are hungover episode, and the shot of Chris Pratt running and just throwing up while he's running—it's disgusting and it's great. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I think the fight is really good because also like the one thing about it is it does show kind of. It was obvious the writers were looking for a way to bring Anne closer into the group dynamic Mm -hmm. um, without Leslie having to go to the hospital every time. Although I did like a lot of the hospital humor. And one side character that I'm sad we pretty much missed after that is um, Dr. Harris. Oh, Dr. Harris. mean like kurt doctor um i love him so much because i've had doctors who just like don't care about they don't care about rapping with you they don't care about being funny they just want to move on and stuff (laughs) i love dr harris because he is such a fish out of water in that situation Mm -hmm. but he's a normal person but he's just he's so grumpy just dry as hell so like in in some ways like the inciting incident of the fight is um is a like it's a transparent plot device and an effort to bring Anne closer into the action but I think it's well done enough because the storyline that it sets off is really good and it actually does it's one of the few times when Leslie's intensity is actually portrayed for being as bad as it really is Mm -hmm. and her being a control freak with Anne um it has a relatively good message too which is sometimes you just need to fight stupidly about something and get it out and then you regroup, you apologize to each other, you move on. Like, um, and that said, also, as much as I agree with you about like Leslie and Ben cementing their couple them, and that's great. I do think one of the best um funniest time periods to write for writers must be 
right before a couple hooks up when they kind of know they're gonna. I oh, think yeah. there's so much fun potential to be really funny there. That and... episode where Ben and Leslie go on the road trip together oh. and they're in the car and she's just doing everything <laughs> in her power to make it not sexual is I could so read from my funny. Sonicare booklets. <laughs> Whale sounds. Like so, so. And you the, the chemistry is like palpable. Mwah. Oh Love yeah. That. Like sexual tension is really great to write even slash especially when the characters are really dorks who are naturally kind of sexless in the way they're yeah. written. Um, because I think Leslie and Ben are at such a great stage of their relationship that I just think this must have been really fun to write. Like, I am not a writer. I'm not a comedy writer, I should say. I'm a journalist, so I am very much a writer. But <laughs> yes, I don't I don't write characters. And that must have been really fun to write. Um, and I just think... It is a perfect episode in so many ways because I think every character is used um, to the best of their abilities. There's not much Jerry, but other than that, um, it's fine because Jerry also wasn't as big of a character at that point anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I really think Leslie's um, read or Amy Poehler's reading of like when Ben asked her if she's okay, like, no, I'm not. I'm very mad. I'm very drunk. Get me another snork juice. Like, <laughs> I love drunk Leslie, and I don't think Leslie gets drunk enough in later seasons. Oh, agreed. Yeah. Hard agree on that. I also, like, in the later season, later, later seasons, when the kids come around and it becomes so much about, like, having it all and parenting. I'm not a parent, and I don't relate to that. So all of the pre-kid stuff, I find personally more, like, compelling. Yeah. Um. So, and then along with the peak, I would ask, like, if you had to tell someone who's never watched Parks and Rec to watch it. And uh, hello, fellow Canadians. We don't have Peacock, but it's on Netflix Canada now. So get into it. Would you kind of recommend like beginning to end watch or would you recommend like I call it remote roulette of just like watch any old episode and you might like it? Uh, personally, it's super hypocritical because I hated it at first, but I think you should start at the beginning. I think it's more satisfying. I would say if you watch the first couple and you're really not feeling it, something that my partner Chris has been doing a lot lately is looking up like the top rated episodes on IMDb or something and just watching a few of those at random. Because that will, unless it's an episode that's rated highly because of some kind of character thing, it will probably give you a feeling of, do I find this funny? Do I like mm -hmm. this? Do I enjoy it? But yeah, I would say if you've got time, who doesn't yeah. have time for TV? Start at the beginning. It's so worth it. And those first few seasons make the rest of it so much more rich and fun. I agree. And I would say even with season one, like even if you don't really like it, it is literally such a short, such a short season. Yes. And know? the show and changes like four yeah. times. So just hang I, around. I would say it's a start to finish show as well. And even though I like... I won't go all the way into saying I hate season six, but I truly don't like season six. I think season six is worth it as a watch because it is a transitionary season that mm -hmm. kind of at least is very important about Leslie realizing her dreams and finally like dreaming beyond Pawnee and stuff. Um, it's worth it to get to season seven. So I... Um, yeah, I think Parks and Rec, of all the shows that I've done besides maybe King of the Hill... It's probably the show that loses the sparkle the least for me. And even though there's so much to criticize about, I mean, we've, we went off on a <laughs> lot of things. 
But there's also, it's kind of a warm bath of a show. Like, and, and really a great metaphor because baths are disgusting, <laughs> but they're really great to experience. Sit in the comforting filth of this show over and yes. over again. <laughs> Parks and Rec Soup. So Christy, I know you talked a little bit about your projects and stuff, but um, where can our uh, listeners even just find you online or support you or like, you know, access your stuff, whatever you want to promote, plug your stuff. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Christy LaPointe. Uh, you can, if you like the show Killing Eve, I host a Killing Eve podcast called Spilling Eve on the Sonar <laughs> Network. Uh, we've done all of the seasons so far. The next season isn't until next year. So I'm very happy to, for time off, but go catch up. We've got an awesome community over there who are way too into the show uh and if you like vegan food or are interested in plant-based food my instagram is at plant-based christy and uh yeah i just throw a lot of a lot of stuff i'm cooking a lot of anti-diet culture shit it's a, a lot of tofu time. scramble a lot of i've been eating pretty much exclusively tofu scramble for months you it's know, great i don't eat enough tofu scramble in the summer because in the summer i don't like hot food mm -hmm, but fair. every time you post tofu scramble i'm like fuck i want tofu scramble. yeah <laughs> i've just been really breakfasty lately yes yeah. as for me i've been your host brie roadie and you can find me on twitter and instagram i guess uh, at breganism which is like veganism but with a b-r-e-e -E, get it our theme music is homo logo by jack dump and you can find them on bandcamp.com slash jack dump and they've got a lot of great free music for everyone to listen to very cool anarchist anti everything they're fantastic our show logo is made by none other than my husband jared daly new episodes are due out every two weeks and you do not want to miss them if you check our back catalog it can whole episodes on Malcolm in the Middle, King of the Hill, So You Think You Can Dance, The Mighty Ducks, The Office, and a whole super month on The Simpsons. We've got content coming up on Scream. We've got content coming up on Seinfeld. So keep tuning in and uh, take it easy, folks. Remember, every time you look up at the moon, I too will be looking at a moon. Not the same moon, obviously. That would be impossible. Thank you. Good comeback story, right? Seabiscuit, the Mighty Ducks, Robert Downey Jr., uh, who Rocky, else? yes, Kim Kardashian. Kim, well, in the video she gets she gets come on her back, I think. Only gonna make the rap party. <laughs>